So yeah, hi, uh, I'm Jack, and I'm going to be talking about Light, which is a language and games project that I've been working on with various collaborator collaborators at Facebook and elsewhere. This work would not have been possible without all of their help. Um, first, I'd like to thank the organizers for inviting me to give this talk and you all for being here. Um, jumping right into it, some background. I've borrowed this slide from some of Jason Weston's older presentations to show a path of inspiration to where we are today. In short, for a while, we've been wanting an agent that truly understands its environment and can learn from interacting with others within the environment. One key requirement to achieve this, of course, is to be situated in an environment. Um, unfortunately, the real world is really complicated, both in the complexity of embodiment as well as in the flood of context we have around us all. Instead, we can work from a simpler point where we've defined the context, leading us to the idea of text games. Uh, early work from Jason set up some prerequisite tasks that required some level of attention, memory, and reasoning. And these tasks motivated some of the common models that we use today, but ultimately they're uh, all synthetic. They fall short of the dream of a real situated human environment. Um, and so where are the humans? Well, they're, they're all on the internet. So we come in and can start with the idea of what is light? Um, so jumping into that, uh, light at, at its surface is a crowdsourced large scale environment. Um, it has, you know, it, it has some agents within that we want to be able to act and speak. Uh, and we want there to be situated dialogue between models and humans inside of this game. Um, in our long-term goal uh, for agents that have human-like AI, We'd need a rich, well-connected and expansive world to interact in. We'd need those uh, players and uh, everyone to have goals to achieve. And of course, we need human players uh, to be engaged with and interact with and learn from. Um, but to really get there, we, we would need to build up from an existing world and agents. And so we needed to establish a baseline. So we started off trying to crowdsource a world. and. Coming up with uh, how to do that happened to be something we did in stages. Uh, we started off collecting uh, locations that have rich, rich text descriptions. Here's one that a, uh, a worker provided when we told them to give us a bazaar. Um, and it has pretty in-depth descriptions, both for what is present and the backstory for the location itself. And we collected uh, a lot of locations uh, of this type. Uh, and then had annotators come through and annotate the objects and characters that were in the rooms that we collected in the previous task. And given those annotations, additional workers uh, would then actually provide more in-depth context to those annotations. So if, if there was a character in a room, uh, say there was a farmer in the bazaar, then they would be given a personality and a backstory by uh, one of our annotators. We also did something similar for all of the objects that were present. Um, and this led us to having a ton of characters and a ton of objects as well. Um, and that was kind of enough that we knew, uh, we knew that we had these completed rooms, essentially, where there was all the context that you needed. You had uh, the description of the room, you had objects that were present within it, and those all had their descriptions. Uh, but 
that's not necessarily a, a world that you can move around and interact with. So how do we put them together? Uh, towards this end, uh, that led us to the core question in our first world building paper, where we learned mappings that would be able to predict neighbors and containment. Uh, and then we trained models to build up a world using the, this, this type of task. Um, so in and underlying this, uh, you could note that within the original data that we collected, there were already some form of relevant embeddings in that data uh, that showed that certain elements were related, right? So um, by querying for a chicken across all of the, the objects, characters, locations, actions, so on and so forth, you might find things that are related to chickens or pirates would bring up uh, ports and things like this, right? And this was all just naturally present in the, uh, in the data that we collected in this, this kind of first round of uh, rooms, characters, and objects. Um, so then by fine tuning existing like uh, fast text embeddings on our data, we could produce a model that roughly predicted neighbors uh, between rooms and also contents of rooms and things people would be carrying and so on and so forth, just by using the names and descriptions of these elements. Um, Check. And then combined with a simple algorithm by which we would pick a random room and start with that, uh, and then determine exits for that room based on this model, uh, and then, you know, recurse and continue to build out the map. And then for each of these rooms, fill those rooms with characters and objects, and then so on and so forth, based on these, uh, these local connections, we could then create these kinds of global rooms, uh, or sorry, global worlds. Um, um, these sorry, are- uh, Jack, mm -hmm. sorry to disturb you made further. Um, so, so we've got your, you've got your slideshow view here. Um, so this, which, which is uh, fine. Some of the, some of our uh, attendees have a little bit of trouble seeing your, your slides. They can't quite small in the, so we can see your presenter notes and your next slide. And oh, your, it's in the presenter. Yeah. Model? Yeah. Sorry. To, really sorry to disturb you. Yeah, uh, no worries. That's, I, like that. I, I kind of was, I was a little worried about that in the start. I, uh, one moment. Hmm. Sometimes it just refuses to share the one that I want to share. <laughs> Let's see. How's this? Is this just the slides? That's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Sorry Thank you that. so much. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I, I definitely feel like I'm taking it at a fast pace, and, and it was probably impossible to read all the small stuff in there. Um, sorry. Anyways, um, here are some of the uh, local predictions that the model might have used. So for instance, when given the town of Venoria, it uh, determined that a, a peak might be nearby. It determined that there would be some characters like people or a merchant inside and, and some objects that might be present. Then we could run that on one of those characters, say the merchant, and it determined that the merchant was carrying a pouch and a cane and a dagger. Uh, and then we could also uh, determine what was in that pouch, that there might be coins or eyeglasses and things like this. So we could build some fairly coherent worlds uh, just using these local connections. And this is one example of, of one of these worlds. Um, and then given this ability, we could generate worlds of kind of arbitrary sizes for us to use in game. Um, but that this kind of brings up a, a question going back to the goal of, you know, this is NLP, what about dialogue? We haven't actually talked to any any humans yet. So how do, how do we do this? Um, 
So here we took inspiration from work on persona chat where uh, humans were given personas and they had a conversation and we applied it directly to light to crowdsource dialogues in our environment. Uh, so we could then have humans play the game acting as characters, in this case, a minister and a bishop, um, and they would have interactions with uh, that had dialogue and in-game actions as well. So, you know, the, the bishop could take the robe from, from the minister or something of the sort. Um, so combining the environmental elements with dialogue, we now had situated conversations within our world. Uh, and these make up the core of the dialogue part of the light data set. Um, so with that together, we'd now have our starting point, uh, a set of locations, objects, and characters, uh, as well as dialogues within this and uh, maps that we could, uh, we could work in. But one of those elements, oh, sorry. Uh, overall, we found that uh, when we tried to train uh, models on this data set, um, the models did pretty well as far as uh, they achieved some level of uh, accuracy that started to approach human. But um, when we examined the gap that we saw there, um, by, uh, by looking specifically at this unseen test set, which is essentially all of the locations that the models that we trained uh, hadn't seen, the characters that they didn't know, things of this form, uh, there was a much bigger gap. Uh, between uh, human performance and determining what uh, the next turn of dialogue might have been or things of the form uh, than, than we saw in the scene set, which is to be expected, but shows that there's definitely room for growth on, on generalizing uh, in being able to take in the context of your environment and act using it. Um, so then with this uh, architecture selected, we were using uh, a, a BERT-based model. Um, we ran a number of ablations to see the effects that different types of grounding might have on the overall uh, success of the model. Um, here, we found that dialogue was the best when the model received all of the environment features, showing both that the dialogue is situated in the context and that models can leverage that context to, to have better dialogues. Um, we also found that persona was particularly useful for determining the next turn of dialogue or the next emote, which makes sense given these direct how the worker was acting. And setting was ultimately the best additional feature for action prediction, uh, which points to the usage of the setting being the most important for knowing the actions that you can take in that setting. Um, so you can see the effects of this context on dialogue turns by keeping the personas and human dialogue static and just changing the setting. So in this case, uh, I was acting as a friend and speaking to the model playing as a traveler. And when I asked it in a, uh, a fishmonger stall at a port, uh, I wonder what I could eat around here. Uh, it responded, you know, are you shopping for fish here too? While when I asked the same question in the desert, uh, the, the model responded, well, the desert is certainly the wrong place for you, my friend, which makes a lot of sense given that I'm not gonna find any food there. Um, so yeah, now they can talk and act, but we, we want to give them something consistent to do, kind of the goals that we were originally uh, discussing. So our first attempt at this involved a framework where an RL trained agent could re-rank utterances in some form with the goal of evoking a specific action from the other agent. Uh, so here you might want the, uh, you might want the knight in the environment to smile, so you might give it a compliment so that it, it smiles, right? 
Um, we kind of came up with two different algorithms that we would be able to use RL in the setting. The first, uh, we split our dialogues, uh, dialogue responses into a bunch of different clusters, and then uh, the RL model could learn to predict which cluster to, to be able to rank from. Uh, alternately, we had a version where we would uh, let the dialogue model surface its top uh, K utterances, and then the RL model could pick one of those K. Uh, to, to be able to use for the next turn. Um, this made sure to kind of keep the, uh, the turns in character and in context based on what the dialogue model knew how to do, but trying to guide it in the direction of accomplishing the goals. Um, and what we found is that um, by using both the agent being trained on the existing light data and the environment being trained in the same way, that the RL model was able to increase its reward, demonstrating it could learn to influence others' actions in this space. Um, and based on the fact that we used uh, the, we used, I guess, the, uh, the dialogue model as the, um, the thing that surfaced the correct turns for the RL model to take, uh, all of the actions that the model would take would still be in character, right? So for instance, um, you might have a townsperson that is in a, a lagoon and, you know, it talks about, um, you know, it, it's cold and, and uh, would you like a, co a coat, right? And this does uh, evoke a goal action, but it doesn't end up totally outside of character. It hasn't strayed off of any distributions. And this was work that we want to continue to work on in the future as this was uh, all on, you know, it was the agents and the environment were, were still just trained models and not actually people. Um, so kind of back to our original goal, we eventually want this whole setup with all of the baselines that we've just established online with real people to learn from. Uh, and this means that we have to deploy it. It, it needs to have a surface that people can, can go to and, and, uh, and access. Um, but one, one important element before we get there, uh, we, we all know what a great way to make AI dangerous is to just leave it free for, for humans to, to uh, encourage it to learn things, right? By imitating humans, it could, it could become pretty bad. Um, so we looked into our data set and started there uh, and found that it had some pretty clear biases. Uh, in this case, uh, I talk about um, gender bias that's present in the database. Uh, so there's an imbalance both in the quantity between male and female characters, as well as the assumed uh, behaviors of each, right? And so as we didn't want the uh, eventual release of the game to compound on these biases, uh, we decided that our agent should be well-behaved and our, uh, our data set should be more balanced. Uh, and this kind of led us to two different works. One was uh, on just uh, adversarial safety in general. Um, and then the, this, you know, to try and make sure that the, the turns that we were learning from weren't necessarily uh, negative. And then also uh, an explicit effort to mitigate gender bias present in light. Um, the main takeaways here uh, was that we found a way on the data collection side to be able to uh, expand in a way that would um, include, be more inclusive, I suppose, of, uh, of female characters and have them have more independent personas rather than ones that were based on their relationship to male characters. Um, and then we also included uh, control variables in our dialogue generation 
uh, that would let us have less gendered utterances, which by default would decrease uh, gender biases as, as responses wouldn't tend to one side or another. Um, so with all of these pieces together, we now have the ability to deploy uh, the game live. And this is some of our, our more recent work, um, this dialogue in the wild. Uh, the basic idea is that we would take uh, this baseline setup that we'd already put together and put it into a game and advertise it for people to play rather than paying uh, like crowdsource workers for their conversations. Um, and then we could evaluate the effectiveness of continual learning in the setting, uh, as well as the effectiveness of different models. And we could also see if there were any differences in the collected data in this setting compared to uh, a crowdsource setting. So in this work, as I said, we put the game live uh, on Facebook Messenger specifically, uh, and paired humans and models together as light characters to have a conversation in one of the many locations. Uh, so here's an example conversation where a player is acting as a groundskeeper uh, and talking with a model who is playing as uh, an assistant chef. So they take turns going back and forth, learning a little bit about each other um, and generally are staying in character. We call the data that we collect in this way a wild data set. Um, so in our setup, we were interested to see if the models could learn and improve by interacting with players. So every time we redeployed the game, each round we used models that were trained on data that was collected in all prior rounds, including that from the original light set. So starting from that baseline, we launched the game, we had people play, we retrained with the new data, launched again with the new model, uh, collected new data, so on and so forth. And, and we wanted to really see how this might improve our models. Um, so here are some uh, of the results of automated evaluations on the models from each of the rounds. Uh, one thing to note is that the, you know, the light test and test unseen sets were those from the original paper, those uh, somewhat out of distribution dialogues collected with uh, crowdsource workers. Um, so in this lifelong learning setup, we found that uh, both retrieval and generative models overall showed improving trends, right? As we gave them more wild data, they improved across all three. Um, and I think that that's interesting to note, especially because the light test and test unseen data sets have different distributions. Um, but the additional data coming from the game uh, still improved the model performance in these settings. Um, so instead of, I mean, instead of uh, just launching one model though, we launched several different variants, each with slightly different elements. Um, and this kind of let us do a parameter sweep of sorts across all of the players, uh, such that we could evaluate models and techniques that we couldn't necessarily evaluate with automatic me uh, metrics. So we measured the rate that players would continue to play after interacting with a specific variant and then pooled over variations to see the impact that individual elements might have. Um, a few takeaways. I think the most important one is that just adding the wild data increased the overall continue rate of players by uh, about 1.3%. So this kind of leads towards uh, not just the automated metrics showing success as lifelong learning improves uh, people coming back, but that these uh, additional in-game metrics showed the same thing. 
there are also the interesting results that moving to a larger model size actually significantly decreased uh, the uh, continue rate of players, despite the fact that it increases uh, metrics or automated metrics. Uh, we found in, uh, in human evaluations later that that might be related to the fact that uh, the larger models were more boring uh, and didn't take as many interesting dialogue turns that kept people coming back. Um, so as an additional thing that we were able to get out of having a live deploy, we used gamification to try and increase the sample quality. So for this, uh, while someone was playing as a character and taking turns, we would actually reward them directly for turns that we thought were in character as determined by the model. Um, and this gave people uh, some sort of idea that we wanted them to continue playing in character. And it helped us actually determine how uh, effectively the players were being in character. So we were actually able to use the total score of any given episode as an estimate of the quality of that episode. So in this case, um, the scoring system acts as a way for us to know. And then when we actually train the original model on a restricted set, so specifically 10,000 examples uh, from buckets from data with data from different estimated qualities, uh, we found that the metric directly predicted how effectively these models would increase or, or these, uh, these examples would increase the model's hits at one. So we could actually use this very rough scoring metric to uh, separate high quality data from low quality data. Um, and while this trend existed when we were restricting example count, we did find that so far, if we train on all of the examples, uh, it performs better than leaving any bucket out. So I don't think that we've saturated uh, the model with uh, the right amount of samples such that we might see an effect where it might be better to leave some of the lowest quality uh, data out from our training. Uh, an additional note is that this, this data collection was actually extremely efficient, much cheaper than when we were crowdsourcing on MTurk. Um, and as we continued to redeploy models, uh, it became more efficient as uh, players would return more frequently, uh, so on and so forth. Um, this is kind of exciting because we can still make the game much better. There are many things that we have planned as far as increasing uh, engagement by delivering important features for players and things that um, are actually valuable to them. Uh, and, and I really think it's nice that we're already seeing this effect in, in just this early stage. So um, since we had this deploy, we also took an opportunity to go back to uh, the idea of goals. Um, and so rather than using um, this kind of model interacting with just the model uh, setup, we actually wanted to collect in-character goals and see if humans uh, could take steps to accomplish those goals. Um, and then additionally, towards this end, we produced some light common sense pre-training uh, and then trained models to be able to speak and act using this, this type of data. Um, so, that task in particular, we gave uh, workers a specific character who they would be playing, in this case, a farmer, um, an action that we want them to take, in this case, get shovel. Um, and then we had them provide us 
uh, motivations at increasing levels of temporal complexity. So for instance, I want to pick up the shovel is directly the action get shovel, but I need to dig a hole has a little bit more context. And then something like I have to plant seeds this morning so I can grow potatoes and sell them at market is an even broader uh, context on top. So we had them provide these and then some required steps that might come before or after the target action. Um, and then this we could then deploy within the game and ask agents to uh, accomplish these goals. So for instance, in this case, we had the goal of, I need to recover the dragon egg that was stolen and punish the knight. And the player who was acting as the dragon starts off with, you know, I'm going to immolate you for this trespass. You stole my egg. And then in the third term, they take the, the, the dragon egg from, from the adventure, uh, which is them accomplishing the goal. Uh, some takeaways we had here uh, is that specialized non-standard pre-training for our models made a big difference. More on that in the paper. Uh, we also included a trainable switch for choosing between dialogue and actions, which improved sample efficiency as the agent learned to accomplish goals using both. Um, and that also eventually these models actually exceeded the player success rate for the shortest action range, uh, possibly because some players weren't taking it very seriously to actually accomplish these goals. But uh, in the end, it was nice to see that they're, they're getting to, to that, uh, that type of success. Um, so yeah, all in all, here's where we stand with the light environment. We have 800 plus locations, uh, some 3,000 objects, 4,800 characters, uh, 120,000 of the original crowdsourced utterances, 230,000 additional ones from players, and 7,500 quests. Um, what's next? Well, we want to build out more of the game using existing research, making it uh, you know, a more active and fun game, uh, providing world builders, multiplayer, things that really drive uh, engagement, but also make it uh, a more interesting environment to do research inside. Um, and then also we're working on new research. So uh, agents that have long-term goals and purpose, um, also having uh, more in-world physical interactions, say being able to combine items or, or do other interactions using them. Um, and also some ideas for better internal world modeling, making it so that the agents can understand and predict uh, what might be inside of an object uh, and then use that in dialogue or, or be able to know what's in the next room and, and use that to answer questions and things of that sort. Um, so yeah, uh, we also have an extremely early release of the game that's available now at uh, lightrpg.ai. Um, it's, it's in what I'd call like a pre-alpha of sorts, so don't have your expectations too high, but it is a pretty cool way that you can see how these models are being used. Um, and yeah, uh, other than that, I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone might have. I know I've rushed through a whole lot to try to get through light, but uh, it's a big project and I didn't want to leave uh, anything out along the way. Any questions for Jack? Jack, could you tell us a little bit more about how the the main kind of loop uh, works in Wild of the the system sort of learning as it as it goes? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is kind of back when we were uh, collecting on um, on Messenger, right? So 
the the biggest thing underlying here is that we uh, we set up specific cutoffs actually of how much data we were going to collect before moving on to the next round of training. So after we collected a bunch of episodes um, in in this context uh, with the baseline models, we take those models offline and actually take the whole game offline for a little bit, train on the new uh, data, and then put the game back up with the new models. Very cool. Very, very impressive stuff. Um, okay, I can see there's two more in the, the Q&A. Um, um, so we have a question from Connor Gregor. Um, would your project ever want to partner with a pen and paper RPG that already exists for the sake of making a large scale single player or multiplayer game that uses established rules? So this is something that we've actually considered quite a bit. Um, one of the upsides is that we'd be able to, to tap into existing data and existing player bases and things of this form. Um, and that would be nice. But one of the levels of difficulty that comes there is that we're kind of building the game uh, up based on what our models are capable of and building the game to meet uh, the capacity of models. And I don't think that we're there quite yet. Uh, one of the steps we are taking in this direction, though, for instance, is that we're including classic, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons style um, uh, attributes for characters, things like the the, the six. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of them right now, but like, you know, constitution and strength and wisdom and all of these, we're starting to put these into the model and see if the model can start to make predictions based on the possibility of an action from these attributes. We imagine that as, uh, as our model becomes more and more able to deal with arbitrary situations, uh, that moving towards something like this would be a, a cool possibility. And we have, uh, thank you, Jack. We have another question here from uh, John Chamberlain. Um, did you notice any player personality types coming through? For example, disruptive players, social players, collaborative players, et cetera. Did the players modify their personality to the persona they were playing? Yeah, so this was actually pretty interesting to see. Um, there were some player type, like broad archetypes, where some people were coming in just to, to troll and see what they could get the model to say and so on and so forth. Um, and we had some people who were, you know, they were interested in like playing a game or two, um, didn't necessarily follow the idea of playing as the character and didn't really stay for very long. Um, but interestingly enough, the, the most frequent player, at least uh, in, in our overall distribution, which tends to occur because this was the player that came back over and over and over, uh, were ones that did faithfully try to reproduce their character and did try to uh, change who they were. So I had some, uh, some slides that I originally hid because I didn't have, uh, I didn't think we'd have enough time to jump into them. Um, but for instance, we have this one uh, where a, a lighthouse keeper and a mischievous teenager are present, right? Uh, and the teenager comes in and is immediately like, oh, I want to play a, a trick on these knights. They've got it coming. Uh, and the, the lighthouse keeper, which is the model, is kind of like um, edging them on to like do a more dangerous type of prank, right? Because the, the teenager's best idea is like, I've got a shoe that I'm going to throw at him. Um, and then we also have uh, a, a chat where um, someone is playing as a merchant who, while it's not necessarily seen here, they're, they're 
I wouldn't say nihilistic in their their character uh, persona, but something of the sort. Um, and when a uh, an angel is here, um, like the angel is coming in and trying to to be understanding and, and open and so on and so forth. But the model being the merchant, uh, it comes out with this, uh, you know, quarreling is a necessary evil. It's meant to run its course with no intervention. Um, and I, I don't know, I found it really funny that both the players and the models had uh, really in character conversations throughout. That's great. Thank you very much, Jack. Um, yeah. uh, Thanks, everyone, uh, for, for your questions and your attention. Uh, you can always uh, follow the project um, or reach out to me, uh, and I, I'd be happy to provide more details if people are curious.